Welcome, everyone. Uh, it's Todd Weiler here uh, with uh, Representative Marsha Judkins, Representative Jordan Tusher, and Representative Jennifer Daly Provo. And we are doing a political as heck without Corey Astill because, <laughs> because there's technical difficulties. But you've got four members of the Utah State Legislature here, and we're going to jump right into it. Uh, we just finished week two of the Utah Legislature, and it was... Um, it was quite interesting. Um, probably the biggest story from week two, Jordan, was you announced on Thursday night, Friday morning, that you were pulling House Bill or putting House Bill 234 on hold. And I have to admit, even though it was a House bill that hadn't even been to a House committee, I was getting uh, I was getting deluged with emails in the Senate uh, from people opposing your bill. In fact, not to be um, rude, but I didn't get a single email of anyone supporting your bill, but I got a lot of emails. Uh, and and that, I'm sure that the word went out among the teachers, organizations, and things to email the legislators. So what, what can you tell us about that? Well, thanks, Todd, for having me on here. This is uh, a good chance to, to get to speak with my colleagues and others. Um, I, I'd say if, uh, if I heard what was being said about House Bill 234, two I'd probably hate it and, uh, and get my pitchfork and, and torch out as well. So I think that that was the biggest thing. I, you know, I knew that there would be some, uh, you know, pushback and debate on, you know, whether this was the right approach. I didn't expect the really coordinated campaign of misinformation about what was actually in the bill. And, you know, some of that is just, you know, the bill is a little bit complicated to read and, and there were different sections that um, could have been written a little bit better, I think is, is fair to say. But uh, I think there was a lot of information that was spread about the bill that really just wasn't the case. And it really riled and stressed out teachers. Well, and um, the opposition to House Bill 234 is the gift that keeps on giving because now it's all shifted to Senator Fillmore's House uh, Senate Bill 114. And I've read both bills and Senator Fillmore's bill appears very different than yours. His was targeted more, I think, at the local school boards, uh, whereas yours was targeted more at, as, and I read your bill as uh teachers posting their syllabi or syllabuses so that the parents could see what that was being taught. But I, I don't want to be it, beat a dead horse. I know you're going to continue to probably work on that issue. Um, is this something you think you'll bring back next year, maybe in a different form? Yeah, I think so, Todd. Um, I worked a lot with teachers and parents groups before the bill came out to try to get to some consensus. I think there is an issue there. We're trying to increase parental involvement and one of the ways that we can do that is to actually share what's going on in the classroom. And that was the real intent behind 234, to really correlate what's happening in the classroom with what they're doing at home. Yeah. And, and whether, go ahead. No, I, well, let's be honest. I mean, there, with all of the national dialogue last year, including Loudoun County, Virginia, and the election of a new governor in Virginia, I think that, I, I think it would be silly for any of us to ignore that there are parents who are concerned about what is being taught in their children's classroom. And I, and, and, and I think your, I assume that your objectives were worthy, that you wanted to try to uh, add some transparency and, and, and put some of those concerns to rest. I mean, was that your goal? Know, exactly, yeah. exactly. We want to put those concerns to rest and really make increased parental involvement so parents and teachers are working together. Um, and that was really the intent. Now, whether what we have in 234 or the substitute of 234 is the right approach um, or vehicle to get us there is, is a real question. And I'm, I'm happy to have those debates. And I've um, talked with now, now hundreds of teachers in the, just in the last week 
uh, about the issue. And I think it, that's what I found is as I sit down and I spend 20 minutes talking with the teacher, at the end of it, we get to a pretty good place where we both identify, yeah, there's opportunity here. Let's figure out where it is. Um, I just didn't have time in the 34 days that we have left in the session to get to that place with 30,000 teachers across the state. And that 34 and so that's days what I'll do. counts the weekends. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that's, Jen, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll work on it over the next year. I think I can come back with something that's much more of a consensus um, that keeps people at ease and doesn't stress out teachers. Perfect. So Jen, why don't you, if you want to weigh in on 234, that'd be great, but maybe tell us what you thought some of the other big stories were from week, week two. Um, well, I, I would be curious how the conversation on 234 proceeds going forward, just because, um, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of bills that I've worked on that, like Representative Tusher said, people misunderstood or didn't read correctly. I mean, statutory language is arcane and often very hard to understand. In looking through the bill, though, I'm not sure I see where teachers misunderstood what the bill did, but I'm excited that um, he's inviting educators to the table to have this conversation over the next year. Um, so kudos and good luck. It sounds like it'll be a lot of hard work. One of the biggest bills that um, I dealt with in hearing from my constituents was um, House Bill 104, which was Senate, uh, Representative Christopherson's bill dealing with changing the public employee system. And so that was a, a really long and somewhat um, hard conversation in government operations, but I think that um, we, we did have a good conversation and I, I know that it will continue to come up. The, there was a substitute made, a first sub made that failed in committee, but the underlying bill did pass on to the House floor. So it'll be interesting to see what comes up on the House floor on that public employee bill. So um, <clears throat> I did get one constituent question about that bill and I looked at it and I said, oh boy, I'm gonna have to dig into this, but can you tell us um, what, what that bill is trying to accomplish and, and what, what the opposition is, Jen, if you don't mind? Sure, absolutely. So it seeks to basically take away the public service protection that comes with being a public employee, which you know, kind of, it has, it has a, I think it has a statutory definition. And the reason that we have that public service protection for public employees is that a lot of public service jobs um, come with a change of boss that is political in nature. So changes to, um, you know, changes from a, a Republican or a Democratic mayor and that public service protection status is meant to shield employees from being punished for being hired by a member of one party and then being in a job when a member of another party um, is elected to lead whatever that form of government is. And that's just one example. So the bill seeks to essentially make um, all public employees or most public employees at will employees and um, particularly managers, anybody who manages employees would automatically be switched over. And I, you know, the biggest heartburn really came from the fact that a lot of people came to the table and worked on the bill over the interim and thought they had come more or less, not completely, but mostly to a consensus on a lot of the language, but um, the substitute that was presented in committee was a pretty dramatic change from what had come out of that working group. And so there's, there's still, um, I think, some, some hurt feelings and, and some mistrust that we're going to have to grapple with over the next few weeks. Yeah, and I shared my screen while you were talking, and 
the the legislative website is showing the first substitute has not been adopted but it's your recollection that it was adopted okay no it was not yep it was moved the first substitute was moved and the the move to the the vote to the motion to move that substitute failed and the the underlying bill did pass out of committee all right so it looks like that passed out with a pretty much straight party vote the democrats voted against it and the republicans voted for it with one exception yeah Oh, is that Doug Welton or? Representative Welton, yep. Yeah, okay, okay. All right, well, thanks. Let's go to you. Um, I'm going to stop the share now. Let's go to you, Marsha. Um, wh- wh- what struck you from, uh, f- from week two? And maybe tell us what you are looking forward to this week as week three is, starts tomorrow. Thank you. So there were um, a couple of things. My, I'm from Utah County and my voters down here have been concerned with Utah Lake. And I don't know if you've heard, but there's been... I've heard of Utah Lake. You've heard of Utah Lake. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Yeah. There's been um, a lawsuit brought... Well, there's, there's a possibility, a group looking to put islands on the lake, and there's been a lawsuit brought by them against a BYU professor. Anyway, that's kind of the big thing going down here, but that it might be Utah County more specific, but the lake actually does affect the whole state. So um, anyway, there's a bill that's, that is coming up that Kevin Stratton has that would increase, give um, right now, uh, it's a small group that would vote on if there were any changes to be made to the lake, like allowing this, um, this company to come in and do that. And it would broaden it so that the whole legislature would have to vote on it. And so that's been kind of occupying my voters, but also something I think that's been really important that you might've discussed on here previously is, you know, we passed our base budgets. We had to get our um, requests for appropriation turned in, but we're uh, three of us in here are on the social services appropriations committee. And I, the whole talk of, of budgets and how are we going to um, take care of those with disabilities in our state when our workers are being paid less than $13 an hour and we the turnover is so high. And even the services that we have promised to people, we cannot keep up those services because we don't have employees that will stay and, and who can blame them, right? And so I, I think that has been kind of consuming me this past week, trying to um, try to work with different, different you know, interest groups, trying to figure out how we can, how can we can take care of those vulnerable families and people. You know, we've heard yeah. the testimony. I went to Costa Vida on Friday night because the other restaurants had too long of a wait and we, we had theater tickets, but um, you know, there was a sign on the door at Costa Vida now hiring $15 an hour. So do, do you want to work with a disabled person who might bite, kick and hit you um, and, and clean up after them? And you know what I mean by when I say clean up after them, or would you rather like roll uh, burritos? I mean, it, it's, for, for $2 an hour or more. It's, it's not a tough decision. So we, we've, we've got to do something there. Um, well, thanks. So Jordan, let's come back to you. Um, any other issues from week two, other than 234 that stood out to you, or what, what are you looking for, forward to for next week, next, next week? Yeah. I, well, I know that the Senate moved forward on the income tax uh, reduction bill. So I think that's yeah, really big. Bill, and as yeah. we talk about kind of putting that budget together, I know my appropriations committee will hear RFAs this week and and try to prioritize things. But where the tax cut fits into that, I think that will be a really interesting uh, debate and and looking forward to having those discussions. You know, and let me just say, um, well, two things. Uh, We've been talking about Utah Lake with Marsha. If if anybody has been in the Senate, I know you three have, but anybody listener, 
there, there's a big five panel painting up above behind where the Senate president stands. And uh, that, that painting is 107, 108 years old. That is a painting of Utah Lake. And one of my favorite things when I'm given a tour, because it's from, you know, the turn of the century, the turn of the last century. When I give a tour, I always ask people, you know, guess which lake that is. And almost nobody guesses Utah Lake because it doesn't look like that anymore. So, um, so it'll be interesting to be potentially de debating a bill about Utah Lake while we're all staring at Utah Lake, uh, number one. But number two, um, so the proposal in Senator McKay's bill is to lower the state income tax from 4.95% down to four, all the way down to 4.85%, uh, which uh, with the other uh, components of the bill is about $166 million tax cut. And I've heard a lot of people saying, well, why are you taking $160 million potentially away from public education? And I, I will just say this, um, every other tax cut that we've done to the income tax rate uh, since I've been in the Senate, which this is, you know, it's been 10 years, um, we've always had more revenue the next year. Uh, it's not like, I don't expect us to be down 160 million. And, and I know this, this might sound like fuzzy math, but part of the motivation here is to, in, uh, to draw more investment capital into the state and to make sure that businesses want to keep on providing jobs in Utah and bring jobs to Utah as opposed to states with no sales tax. And so what I would say is a rising, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And that's part of the goal here, not, not to necessarily take $160 million away, but maybe add $160 million, you know, every year for the next decade. But Jen, I'm going to guess that you may have a different perspective. Do you, do you want to well, comment on that? Sure. I mean, I am all about making sure that we make really smart decisions about tax cuts. My biggest concern about the proposed tax cut that you've mentioned is that it doesn't measurably, for the people who actually will benefit from that, it doesn't make a measurable, any measurable difference in the standard of living for those families. It's um, such a small amount per month for those families. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I've, at its most simple um, calculation, and it is very simplistic, but if you just took a median family in the state of Utah, which is for families, I think 61 or $64,000 a year and went from 4.95 to 4.85, I think that amounts to about, and that's if you paid taxes on all of those dollars, which many people do not, um, something around six or $7 a month per family. And I just don't see how that translates to a really meaningful um, change in the standard of living for a family where um, the same investment. And then, of course, our lowest income families in the state of Utah won't see any any difference because they already are at the bottom end of or pay no income tax at all. And I just I don't see how that accomplishes the goal of really lifting families out of poverty because poverty is bad. Poverty is really bad for the economy. Poverty is one of the biggest drains on our economy. And I personally think that that money could be better invested or more wisely invested in, for example, an EITC, um, an earned income tax credit for low-income families that is, has really been shown to help lift families out of poverty and become more self-sufficient. The more self-sufficient they are, the more income tax they pay, or they get to the point where they are paying income tax. Um, I just personally think that there are better options to invest that funding um, that have a more meaningful impact in the state. Marsha, do you want to weigh in on the income tax cut? Yeah, um, so I I get what Jen is saying for sure. I mean, um, I think a lot of people don't understand that it really isn't going to affect their bottom line that much, this tax cut. But um, it also is 
a symbolic gesture to show that we want to be, you know, good fiduciary agents with with the taxpayers' money. Something that I think would be really interesting to look at. Um, uh, Representative Christofferson has a bill file open, and this is what, anyway, what I've kind of pushed for is to, that would look at the tax incentives that we give and see which ones aren't working for us anymore. We, you know, we have, we don't have enough workers. <laughs> we have a lot of businesses coming in and to continue to give tax incentives and pick winners and losers among industries and businesses isn't necessarily serving our state anymore. And he has, tar he has found about $130 million in tax incentives that could even cover that tax cut or, or more. And I just think that that's a really interesting idea um, to look at also that, that end of it. Yeah, and I know the governor has proposed a, a grocery tax rebate or credit. Um, you know, I just want to note for our listeners, we did have a state um, EITC uh, as part of a comprehensive tax reform package that was passed mostly just with Republican votes and then repealed after the um, signature gathering initiative was going to place it on the ballot. And um, and and you know I think um, I think that that bill was anticipated to be about 160 million dollar income tax or uh, tax cut net tax cut, but it that what drew the ire of uh, of a lot of people was it it did restore the the full sales tax on food that we had up until uh, Governor Huntsman was elected and um, and 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 that that became a controversial um, component to it. Let's see, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, uh, let, let's start, let's go back around. Uh, we'll start with Jen here. Uh, wh what bill are you most excited about or what two or three bills are you running that you'd, you'd want people to know about this year? I know that I'm working with you on one of them. Yeah, I was gonna bring that up. I hope that's okay. So yeah. um, Representative Judkins mentioned in social services, um, you guys talked a little bit about how low the pay is for healthcare workers who provide services to people with um, developmental and um, de yeah, developmental yeah. disabilities. So these are these are people who deserve a safe place to live. And Senator Weiler has graciously agreed to be my Senate sponsor on a project that um, I've been working on for a long time. Senator was he was also you were also my Senate sponsor when we passed the original bill in 2019 to create a study to create a state disability ombudsman office that um, will focus on connecting people with disability families to services or help breaching barriers that they come up against um, just to make sure that the dots are connected, that people are able to find the help that they need because, you know, being a person with a disability or taking care of someone in your family who has a disability in and of itself can be very challenging. And if we can, you know, in the fiscal notes, really affordable, I think we're going to make a, a big difference in the state of Utah. But back to the funding um, in social services appropriations, I do have a $40 million appropriations request um, to fully fund the, the staffing pay needs for those for those caregivers. And so we'll see how that shakes out in the next five business you know, days. In $40 million here and there after a while, it starts to add up. So what's a know, few I... 10 million between friends? Yes. <laughs> Uh-oh, my, my battery's running low. I hope it doesn't die. Uh, Jordan, what bills are you working on for this session? Let me go get, grab a plug while Jordan's talking. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about three that I'm really excited about. One that just passed the House on Friday, and that is my traffic violation amendment bill. Uh, it essentially says that uh, if you get a traffic 
a moving violation and you haven't had one in the last two years, uh, you can go right onto the court's website, pay your fee, promise that you're not going to get any violations in the next year. And if you don't, the, the charge is dismissed. Um, that bill will take uh, tens of thousands of cases out of our local justice court so they can really focus on the cases that are important and save a lot of time from individuals that are, are generally great drivers that made a, a mistake here or there. Um, uh, another one, I've got a couple bills dealing with cryptocurrency and blockchain, um, one that establishes a task force, another one that uh, uh, gets our state agencies to start uh, collecting in cryptocurrency. Um, these bills also helping with uh, one that uh, Senator Colomore is sponsoring in the Senate. It's going to come over to the House. But these bills will really help Utah get to the forefront here. Wyoming's been kind of the leader in the United States in, in cryptocurrency uh, legislation, and it's it's brought a lot of business into the state, but those businesses, I think, would much rather be in Utah, and uh, we've been a haven for industrial banking and, and other type of banking for a long time, and so if we can keep up there, I think it will bring a lot of jobs to the state and a lot of innovation here, uh, and then lastly, uh, as you know, Represent or Senator Weiler, I had um, an initiative referendum bill that was uh, a hot topic this last session. This year, I'm coming back with um, a change to open up electronic signature gathering. And I think this will be a real win for um, small grassroots initiative and referendum efforts, and uh, will save a lot of back-end paperwork that we have in our clerk's office when there is an initiative or referendum. Okay, Marsha, do you, do you want to talk about some of the bills that you're excited about for this session? I also have a bill with you. Yes, you do have a bill with me that just barely passed. I, it, it failed and then I brought it, somebody brought it back and it passed and it uh, has to do, it's called animal fighting penalties, but what it does is it's, it strengthens our animal cruelty laws and closes a loophole so that, um, so that cockfighting rings can be prosecuted um, by law enforcement, uh, with law enforcement. It, likes this bill. So anyway, there's that. Um, a bill that I am really excited about, well, I'm very hopeful for, I'm excited about is, has to do with juvenile justice. And, you know, we have juveniles that are charged as adults. Uh, they commit pretty serious heinous crimes and they go into the juvenile system and are housed there. And then um, when they are, when they turn somewhere around, when they turn 21, um, they are transferred into the adult system. And what my bill and there's other juveniles who can commit the same crimes and are not charged as adults and they get to be housed in the juvenile system up until they're 25 and um so what my bill would do is it would just if you if a juvenile is charged and um convicted as a juvenile they can stay in the juvenile system they can stay in that housing until they're 25, regardless of if they're tried as an adult or not. Didn't and, we raise it to 21 just recently? Yeah, it was just raised to 21 okay. last year. So um, this I just, think I worked with you on that one. Yeah, this is, it's, it, I've, I've met with these kids and, um, and I just, my, I don't know, my heart's in this bill really and truly because when we, it's good for public safety, it's good, it, it, it lowers, recidivism. And it also, these kids, when they are transferred into that adult prison after they've been in the juvenile system and they're transferred in as emerging adults in that young population, they are made victims. They're, they're yeah. sexually abused. I mean, just all kinds of things. And we, you know, so anyway, it doesn't change anything about sentencing, just changes the housing piece. And, and let's be honest. I mean, some 17 year olds look like and act like they're 30 and some look and act like they're 12. So they're, they're not all the same. They're so. not all the same. We shouldn't just treat them all the same. You're right. Yeah. Um, 
So there's also, I'm bringing back for the third time, uh, funding for students with disabilities that changes our funding formula. It lags by two years, and this would bring it um, so that it, it would not have that same lag. And there are currently uh, over 500 students that are not being counted in our public school system, students with disabilities that are not being funded um, right now. So this would just close that, close that lag. So those are a couple bills. I could keep going, but I know that we're getting to the end of time. So right. no, we're okay. Well, let me just tell you, I passed uh, four or five bills through the Senate um, this uh, this week, so they're all coming your way. Um, I've got two expungement bills that have passed the Senate. One of them um, just makes it easier for uh, the expungement process in Utah has been really, really hard. And what we found um, is about fifty. 6% of the people who, uh, about half of the people who qualify for an expungement, even though they start the process, they give up before they get the expungement because there's so many hoops to jump through. And so I worked with a stakeholder group all summer and fall, and we've got a bill that makes it a little bit easier. It still won't be a walk in the park, but it'll be a lot less complicated than it has been. And then my second expungement bill is a, a little bit more controversial. Um, and uh, it basically... Um, so I, I, I described it this way. So if a guy breaks up with a girl and he breaks into her apartment and steals all of her stuff uh, and, and goes to jail for theft, he could eventually apply for an expungement. But if he drives by her house too many times and gets a stalking order uh, entered against him, right now in Utah, he could never get that stalking order expunged. Um, and a, a stalking injunction is um, a civil remedy, which is you know less than a criminal penalty, and the same with civil protective orders. And so the second bill um, creates a process for the first time in which a um, stalking injunction or a civil protective order, that there's at least a method um, for um, trying to get those expunged. And if imagine somebody gets a protective order when they're 19. Under today's law, they could be 49 and still be going to job interviews and being asked about that protective order from 30 years ago. And I think all of us understand the, the, the need um, to try to give someone a, a reset button to push in their life if they've made a mistake. At the same time, I understand what domestic violence is, is a thorny issue. And so I've tried to build in a lot of adequate protections there. Um, but, um, you know, I, the, the lazy argument is, oh, well, this is stupid. Those men or women, uh, whatever the case may be, should never get those expunged. But in reality, some of these protective orders and stock injunctions are issued once, oh, they're all issued one-sided ex parte. And oftentimes, when you know they have the subsequent hearing usually 30 days later and the judge hears both sides they'll say that there's no reason to continue it even in those situations you can't expunge them and so i do think um it makes sense to at least have that discussion so that's all um i'll tell you about today um so thank you so much uh representative marcia judkins representative jordan tusher and um jennifer uh representative daily provo Thank you all for joining us and I'll probably see you all tomorrow. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks, Senator. Take care. Bye-bye.